This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. It is 5 o'clock where you are. It is 12 o'clock here in the U.S. Really interesting day. Um, the big mover to the downside had to do with the biotech stocks, whether about your BioNTech or Pfizer or Moderna here in the U.S. And the news was that the U.S. is thinking about uh, waiving its IP all right. So basically any country can get access to the ingredients of a COVID vaccine and produce it themselves. Angela Merkel, though, pushed back about half an hour ago, and that helped stabilize the equity market. Biotech stocks were off the lows at the session. That really wound up helping. But other than that, it feels like we're prepping for tomorrow's jobs day, whether you're in Asia or U.S. or Europe. That's now uh, the key story looking for. We'll get into what BOE also did. Bank of England also did and how that sets us up for tomorrow as well. In the meantime, Charlie Pellet's here with all the stories you need to know. Hey, Charlie. Hi. Well, hello there, Alex Steele, and here's what's going on. French fishing boats have begun leaving Jersey waters after the UK and France sent military patrol vessels to the area amid a deepening row over post-Brexit fishing rights. Representatives of the fishing fleet who were upset at the conditions attached to licenses needed to operate in the area said they had made their point and will be heading back to France. Two British ships were deployed last night to the island ahead of a potential blockade by the fishing boats in what the UK called a precautionary measure. Millions of British voters are taking part in local and national elections today that are set to shape the future of the UK in a major test for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Contests are taking place for the governments of Scotland and Wales, the Mayor of London, along with local councils. And the Bank of England slowed its emergency bond buying and signaled it is on course to end that crisis support later this year as a strong rebound takes hold across the economy with the removal of pandemic restrictions. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thank you, Charlie Pellet. Um, I mentioned the Bank of England and uh, what wound up happening today. So basically what the Bank of England did is they stretched out their bond buying till the end of the year, which meant that they're going to be reducing the amount they're buying each month, but they're buying for longer. Well, the, key, the key, though, for them is the massive amount of growth that they see in 2021. We're talking like 7.2%. It's huge. And then it moderates to about 5% plus uh, in 2022. What it appeared to do, though, is take off the easing bias that a lot of central banks has, have been working with. So you're looking at the Bank of Canada, the BOE, the Nordisk banks sort of transitioning into a less accommodative mode. So that was the narrative. Um, we caught up with Andrew Bailey, uh, the head of the Bank of England, the Bank of England governor, and sort of talked to him about their growth upgrade as well as their bond purchase program. We've been clear today we have not changed the stock of quantitative easing that we're doing this year. So what we've changed is the pace at which we achieve that stock. But actually, we haven't changed the end date. We always said we would, we would end it around the end of this year. We front-loaded it somewhat because back in November, we were in the midst of an upsurge in COVID. We were concerned about you know, financial markets uh, uh, situation, uh, the, the, the performance, and, and ensuring that yeah, financial markets continue to be robustly performing. So it made sense in, that, in terms of, of, of market efficiency to front-load it. 
we've now got to a point where we think it makes sense to now move back to that to flow that meets that eventual target. And you've made that very clear. Given how the markets initially reacted, what does it tell us about market positioning or market exuberance or how much focus will be on, on any signal on tapering? Well, I, I, I fully expected, I can, t- I can tell you, I fully expected we'd be having, having discussions like this because, um, you know, it, it, it's reasonable for markets to ask the question. Uh, and, and, of course, there is this point about, um, you know, bringing out the difference between open-ended and, uh, and, and fixed, fixed, fixed QE, QE programs. Uh, they are different in that sense. So what are your expectations for QE next year? I don't have any expectations at the moment at all. I mean, we, because the decision we took today was to say that the current policy setting was appropriate. But what kind of trend are you expecting? If, if you look at your forecasts, right, they're built on two rate hikes over mm-hmm. the next three years, and that has inflation just at target. Yeah. Is, is your next move tightening? Well, we don't, of course, you know, our forecasts don't validate the markets in that sense. We use the market profile to construct a forecast which is then, you know, used in the, in the policy process. What I would say uh, is that it's quite interesting. When we also publish a constant rate forecast conditioned on constant rates, i.e. the current setting of policy. That was Andrew Bailey talking to France in Lacqua, uh, the governor of the Bank of England. Guys, with me now. You good now? Have some studio <laughs> problems? You good? I'm in the middle of eating a raisin, and they're like, talk! And I'm like, uh-oh. All right, here we go. I was slightly concerned, yeah. It, it, I... I I, I couldn't hear you. I could hear the producer, but I couldn't hear you. Believe Which, me, if you were panicked, I was even more panicked. Actually, anyway, panicked, but you know, it's cool. You're uh, cool, calm, and collected. It is. Thank you very much. Um, but anyway, what I thought was interesting from the Bank of England is that the lack of reaction in the market, like, could not seem to care less. Well, yeah, I think uh, in some ways this has been reasonably well telegraphed. This expectation that we were going to see this being stretched out, um, this QE program. I don't know what today was. I really struggle with mm-hmm. kind of what the what the Bank of England is communicating at the moment. But Lucy Meakin, who covers the Bank of England for us here at Bloomberg, is here to explain. Can you can you sort of give me a trajectory that the Bank of England is on here? It's stretching out its QE program, as Alex says. Um, there is a huge amount of growth coming towards the Bank of England, but they think it's going to fade. And as a result of which, I don't understand what comes after. The end of QE, which we're not allowed to call a taper in what was announced today, I don't understand what comes after that. I wish I had an answer for you. And there was me expecting one. Yeah, I know. You looked really, really... I was, I was you, anticipating Yeah, I could feel the pressure, pressure building. Yes, no. What we have is this not taper, a yeah. slowing. They were very, very keen to push back on anyone yeah. saying taper. It's a slowing which we did know was going to come. We, we, we anticipated this come because we knew that the, the pace they were currently at for this year's purchases, they were going to run out of money before they got to the year end. Yep. And they had said they would slow us at some point, so we knew it was coming. I'd say it's slightly earlier than a lot of people anticipated because we are about to see this massive growth spurt. Mm-hmm. But that growth spurt isn't... It's not like we're going to have like a runaway decade of growth off this. We're going to have some runaway quarters of growth, maybe a few years, if we're lucky, because it's a rebound. It's not a, you know, this is a bounce back. Well, that's what's so interesting is that I feel like then you're in for 2022, which is still like 5% growth. But you guys over there aren't talking about the $4 trillion that we're talking about here in the U.S. in terms of spending. Sure, it might be spread out over eight years, but still... 
that's a different set of circumstances in terms of an unwind as growth slows than what you guys have. It's true. And you don't, you, they, they have to take government policy as it is currently, which is the furlough is extended through September. Then, you know, but that's all we know, really. We, don't, we, we can't guarantee what's going to come from government policy. And I suspect that's part of the reason they are being quite vague, because they don't know. However, they don't want to get into the state where they're promising to do more QE next year when they are thinking they're going to see a strong year of growth. And they don't want markets to get so dependent. Plus, you've got the question of inflation. So I I think the fact that the communication is a little bit confusing is possibly because the message is quite confusing (laughs) and quite vague. On balance, dovish or hawkish? It was was today, today... In in some ways, it was very positive, but nothing's going to happen. So given given where kind of growth is going, I appreciate it's over the next few quarters, and we'll probably need to wrap up this. So I'm going to I'm going to ask the question, then you're going to answer it after the break, um, so you can think about it. Very clever answer coming up. Um, but growth is very high now. But actually, what they're signalling is that policy is reasonably stable. So I'm just wondering whether I could take that as being more dovish. You you hold that thought. We're going to come back to Lucy Meekin in so just excited. a moment. I am genuinely excited. Yeah. Can't wait. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. Uh, Before we get too deep into the ornithology, um, we we really need to talk about where the Bank of England is going in terms of the rate trajectory. Lucy Beacon and I have been discussing this during the break. And basically the question that I've asked is, in three years' time, is there a serious chance that interest rates are going to be significantly different from where they are now. And I have to say my conclusion is probably not, but I but I don't understand kind of the message. I think the I maybe the message is deliberately confusing. Lucy, is that a reasonable way of looking at it? Actually, we're going to go nowhere and to be honest, we're not really going to understand the path that we're on because it's not being communicated particularly clearly. I've been covering the Bank of England for the past 5 years. And throughout that time, I feel like the number of times we've thought rates are going to do something versus the number of times they've done anything with rates is yeah. not a great correlation. So I I always incline to think that they want to do as little as possible. Yes, they would like to get rates higher, but I don't think they think we're going to be seeing really you know, yeah. strong interest rates ever. We're maybe. not back to the 70s, basically. No, there no. is not an inflation research coming here that takes us back to kind of pre-Thatcher kind of inflation rates. Yeah, Jan Vliegeri has been very clear on this. He said he doesn't see those kind of rates coming back in his lifetime. As far as he's concerned, those were a bit of a one-off. But do we need high interest rates to get off an easing bias? So maybe we don't see, like here in the US, we're not going to see like 17% mortgage rate for 30-year fix or something, but something materially higher that can make a difference in terms of growth. Or is it really going to be just slogging around this lower level here? I mean, obviously, we're right now at all-time lows. You, you can go lower, as we now know, but but we're, we're really at low, low levels. So, I mean, even some fairly, you know, comparatively high is still historically very low. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to worry too much about huge interest rates coming back anytime soon, or indeed maybe ever. Um, one of the reasons why... The Bank of England has been buying bonds is to help out the government. Right, it's a tacit arrangement, but but it seems to correlate quite. Yeah, it's neatly. pretty neat. Yes. Um, c- 
can I assume from what is happening here that the that the bank sees a, a lower financing requirement coming through from the government, i.e. as the economy picks up, tax rates going to pick up, therefore actually the government's going to need to borrow less and it will need to buy less? I think that would certainly be the hope. Right. I think when what we heard from that interview with Francine was that Bailey was basically saying he doesn't really want to get into more key, more expanding QE they may maintain obviously but yeah. not expanding QE next year he kind of wants to avoid that and as far as he's concerned it would take a big negative shock for that to happen so perhaps we get Covid comes back with a vengeance a new variant that Shh, don't say that what are you doing, doing you look I'm, I'm not vaccinated so I'm feeling quite I've got my second one next week I'm feeling quite clever you do yeah, oh you're going to yeah. call out the whole week aren't you oh yeah Oh man, that guy! Uh, but yeah, because something I, like that—that's what it yeah. takes, I think, for us to see action next year. And with that, I assume they're assuming that the government isn't going to be keeping up the levels of support it yeah. has been, because hopefully, we're all back in the bars and shops and. So they've raised their shopping expectations. Like, I, I, Lucy Meekin has not been shopping yet. Like, wait, weren't you the one looking serious... for jeans? Yes, that's not your thing. Yet. Did you not find them? Okay, I'm showing Guy that I literally have a hole in these jeans. I've got, yeah, so all of my jeans are completely trashed. Yeah. So, uh, jean, I basically, I think, yeah, jean purveyors are going to be doing very, very well. <laughs> but the gov- but the bank did upgrade its forecast in terms of mm, kind of people spending it? money. I mean, huge, yeah. Yeah, right? a lot. So, in terms of household spending, they think that's going to be 5.25% this year. That's the most since the 80s, when, mm. you know, people bought a lot of jeans. The 80s were great. Uh, and in terms of the big question was if people were going to spend their savings that they've accumulated over the last year. And previously they thought they were going to spend 5% and they did say that was cautious. Now they've doubled that to 10% and they've said that the underlying pool of savings that that 10% is drawn from is also greater than they previously thought. Wow. So spend, 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 guys. Yeah, but do you buy the remember. jeans and then not go, get, go to the pub? That yeah. remains the question. Skinny legs were popular in the 80s. They're back, man. Wa- the 80s, I wore bodysuits back in the early, late stonewash 90s. Is what I, stonewash is what I remember from tie-dye. the 80s. When was tie-dye? Bodysuit yeah, blazers. Basically. It wasn't good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Don't we're go down that road. Vaccines next. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, this is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Top stories today within the markets was what happened to biotech stocks after President Biden said he would be considering whether or not to waive the IP protection when it comes to COVID vaccines. Um, Europe was thinking about it. Angela Merkel came out earlier and said that she didn't support that. Um, Let's hear the other side. And that's the countries that really do need those vaccines. So joining us now is Aurelia Nguyen, a managing director of the COVAX facility. Um, She's basically leading the coordination and procurement and delivery of COVID-19 vaccines for the 190 participating economies uh, through COVAX. It's the main initiative to ensure fair and equitable access to those COVID-19 vaccines. Um, Aurelia, why is this a solution for you guys, waiving those IP rights? Uh, so, I mean, very interesting decision uh, by, by the U.S. government. Um, and I, I think to be looked at in, in, in the context of using all the mechanisms that are available to us to increase global equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. And that's really the, the part that we need uh, to think about in terms of today we're far away from vaccine equity. And until more doses arrive in lower-income countries, 
then the the global vaccine divide is going to widen. So um, for for us, this is a, a good development. It's also alongside other significant um, commitments that the U.S. administration has made, uh, for instance, on increasing raw material production, which is another thing that's going to have a very immediate Absolutely. impact on alleviating our, our supply constraints at the moment. Aurelia, um, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, has within the last few minutes uh, said that she is not in favour of this IP transfer. Is there a compromise? Is there a licensing compromise? Is there some way that we can get what everybody needs uh, without undermining the, the R&D and the IP uh, that the pharmaceutical companies have generated? So there's, um, I, I think, some things that um, I, I think we should all agree on in terms of um, the fact that, um, you know, not having access doses fast, it's bad news for the countries that don't have access, but it's also bad news for the countries that do have access as the virus continues to think Look, I, th- I think we can all agree on that. It's the question of how we get there. And is there a we're going to all get bogged down in this now? And I'm wondering whether there's a compromise, which is rather than simply transferring IP, it's a licensing agreement, a transfer of know-how in terms of manufacturing as well. I just want to make sure. I think we all agree that that everybody needs to get access to vaccines as quickly as possible. My question is: Is this the best way of getting there? So, um, indeed, you've touched on it. There's a double lock. There's the the intellectual property, but there's also the the know-how. And I think we can have more equitable supply through technology transfer, where you have, you know, the private sector, which, um, you know, in many cases has uh, benefited from public funds. They invest in new manufacturing capacity in uh, and ring-fenced for emerging economies. And this is uh, an approach that's partnership-based. It's what the Director General of the World Trade Organization has uh, coined a third way. And this is, I I think, a a very quick way to boost production uh, to bring vaccines to those that that need them most. I mean, Pfizer was saying something like, and I'm making up the number, but it's a lot, like 28 different ingredients or something um, in order to make this vaccine. Let's pretend that the IP rights were waived. Like, what's the likelihood that all of a sudden we're going to have a factory pop up in one of these countries soon to make these vaccines? So it's a combination of of different levers, and we really need to think about using all the mechanisms. So um, it's not only transferring intellectual property, it's also transferring know-how that needs to to happen in in order to really meet um, this bid for, for an urgent boost to global production. How quickly can it happen? Were we to transfer IP, were the Americans decide that they are going to do this and they're going to help out in terms of production as well, how quickly is it going to make a difference to those people that need these vaccines so desperately? So, I mean, I think that's a question uh, that, that uh, maybe the, you know, the manufacturers uh, who, who give and receive the IP may be best placed to answer. In the, in the what do you hope term, would happen? How what quick, we need to I, think about is, share, is, is, is sharing the doses that exist. Right. So there's an export element to all of this as well. That probably is a more near-term strategy for dealing with the problem that we Absolutely. share. Right. Um, how, where is that now? I mean, we've seen the U.S. kind of loosen their restrictions. Europe has actually been great about exporting um, certain vaccines. At this point, does, does Gavi care about which vaccine at this point when, you know, Western countries are kind of arguing about, you know, mRNA versus traditional vaccines? 
I, I think we are following the data. I think the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines that have WHO emergency use listing has been proven, has been very much assessed in light of some of the questions we've seen in individual countries and that the vaccines that are that are being used are um, uh, are the ones that are going to make a, a real difference. So um, uh, my strong encouragement is that we should use all the vaccines that are available to us at the moment. In terms of your sense about where they need to go first, I, India obviously looks like a clear case in point, but, but what is your sense of what is happening on the ground at the moment? All countries obviously need access to vaccines, but which countries need them the most right now? So I, I, I think it's um, perhaps my question of which, uh, which groups, perhaps more than which countries, which is okay. there are still countries where a first dose um, of uh, vaccine has not been given to healthcare workers, and they are yeah. the most uh, at-risk of populations. And so until we can ensure a, a minimum coverage for these very uh, high-risk populations, healthcare workers, um, uh, the, the, the elderly, um, then, um, uh, you know, there may be, you know, geographic uh, differences that, that, that we may want to consider. Yeah. But at the moment, we should really be pushing to protect um, the, the most vulnerable people. Across the different countries. Aurelia, we really appreciate your time. Obviously, good luck. The important work that you guys are doing. Uh, Aurelia Aguian of the COVAX, Managing Director of the COVAX facility. Um, And, Guy, I just wonder if we can't get this sorted now, what happens when we get boosters? Like, we're going to get boosters probably in New York before people even get their first shot. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's a problem. And that's a problem. But what I'm concerned about is that we get bogged down in the in the details of IP transfer when actually what we need is vaccines need to go out the door right now. Anyway, this is The Cable. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio here in London. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. Uh, Voting underway here in the UK in a series of elections. We'll bring you the results of those tomorrow. Tomorrow could be an interesting day for UK assets. In terms of what they did today, Alex, FTSE 100 uh, up by around half of 1%. Um, We did generally see European equities on the front foot today, climbing back in towards the end of the session. Uh, In terms of the pound, though, under a little bit of pressure, certainly on the uh, the cable rates after the Bank of England, to be honest, didn't really do very much today uh, and basically signaled going forward that it's going to, as you say, stretch out its QE program. But beyond that, hard to really gauge exactly what is going on here. Um, yep. Nothing very exciting. Punch- hey, you didn't say punchy yet. Guy said punchy like 75 times on TV today. That was that was true. the thing. It is true. I, you have to have a word of the day and you just got to go with it because it just gets embedded in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no, and it's one of those kind of words that everybody has their kind of transition words. Mm-hmm which they use to kind of, and today that was, that was mine. It's better Usually than farm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And punchy. Which just makes me sound very British. Absolutely <laughs> punchy. You are British, by the way. I had spotted that, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> not unfortunately. Uh, the other thing we're talking about today is, is, is the island of Jersey and, and fishing, um, which has been a big theme today that's, here in the UK. That's really, I don't, I don't understand. So the, you're sending warships Oh, yeah. It's the like, French. You've got to send warships. That's insane to, like, two little fishing boats. I just, I don't, I literally that, can't yeah, I picture what this looks like. I, to be fair, they're not very big warships. They're only little warships as well. 
Um, but yeah, and it's only a little island, Big Jersey. So anyway, but the French have threatened to cut it off and cut off its electricity, and the, the French the, fishermen showed up in St. Helier today. The, the, I mean, not to like drag this on, but the reason also why I find it so funny is that I understand fishing rights, but fish also swim. So like... <laughs> They you do. could literally just stay right by the line, and then once the fish swims to you, then you can get it. I just it, it boggles me. Okay, I, I I don't think that's how it works in terms of the fishing. <laughs> but I don't want why not. But I take your point. Okay, thanks. We'll go. They, they the fish can swim, um, and maybe they hope that they will swim towards France. Charlie Pellets here to update us on on all the news we need to know, including fish. Hi, thank you very much indeed. How's that for a word of the day? Millions of British voters taking part in local and national elections today that are set to shape the future of the UK in a major test for Prime Minister Johnson contests taking place for the governments of Scotland and Wales, the Mayor of London and local councils. You mentioned those French fishing boats. They have begun leaving Jersey waters after the UK and France sent military patrol vessels to the area amid a deepening row over post to Brexit fishing rights. Representatives of the fishing fleet who are upset at the conditions attached to licenses needed to operate in the area say they had made their point and will be heading back to France. Two British ships were deployed last night to the island ahead of that potential blockade by the fishing boats in what the UK called a precautionary measure. The deployment of the ships is a sign of the ongoing frictions between the two NATO allies caused by Britain's exit from the European Union. Russia has approved a single-dose version of the Sputnik V COVID-19 vaccine after it showed almost 80% efficacy, according to the state-run fund that backed its development. And here in New York, our mayor, Bill de Blasio, says he is working with state officials to offer free vaccines to visitors as a way to encourage them to visit and spur tourism. Mobile vans will be bringing Johnson & Johnson one-dose shots to Times Square, Brooklyn Bridge Park, and other popular locations. And uh, Guy Johnson just hoping that Mayor Sadiq Khan reciprocates so that I can come over for my third and fourth But jabs. then you have to go back. Hey, I would love that. I don't understand. It's the, it's the excuse I need, but I just don't want to deal with quarantine. What do you mean you got to go back? You well, mean If you get two shots and you come to New York as a visitor and you get a shot, then you have to come back no, to get your no, second shot. No, it's only one. They're offering the, the one. It's, it's the one oh, shot so dose. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Right. Well, that, so there's well, that makes incentive. a little bit more sense. So you can come over here, pick up your trainers, you know, have some good bagels in New York. Uh, we've got Broadway reopening. And uh, and get a jab, so all good stuff. Okay, that's that's quite the uh, the tourism the pitch. pitch. <laughs> you, you can probably hear Charlie on like the MTA being like, <laughs> yeah. "Come back to New York, you get a shot." <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, that's it. When Guy Johnson, do you think that uh, Americans will be welcomed back with similar incentives to London? I, I thought we were just going to end when when Americans going to be welcomed back. So, uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, could, I could answer that fairly quickly. Uh, I, I don't think that that will be happening, to be honest. Um, not everybody's been offered. Like Lucy Meekin was in the studio earlier on. She was grumbling about the fact that she doesn't still have her vaccine. Yeah, we're definitely, we really pushed ahead in the like US. We, we've, we've done a lot of people here, but there are there are younger people than me that haven't had their vaccine yet. A lot, so a lot I, we, we can't really welcome welcome you lot over here just yet. Yeah, well, we don't want you lot over here either. So <laughs> there you go. Fair Fully enough. vaccinated. But I'm, I'm looking forward to my second shot next week. What, what, when is it? Monday. Your shot's on Monday. After the show. Interesting. Okay. All right. I'm just going to see because Guy gave me so many problems for missing the show after I got my second shot. So you well, know, I think it was Tuesday only, should be was, fun. That was only fair after you gave me so much grief for being a baby, <laughs> I quote. 
I didn't say that was Sam Fazelli. Uh, uh, I, and I got to tell you, I ended up taking a voluntary day off work, a, a vacation day, the day after I got my jab, uh, oh. because I've heard all these horror stories about you know how how some people didn't fare that well. It was a wasted day off. I had zero problems, zero Call issues. Sick. What is wrong with you? You uh, take I, a you, you take a tea day. I, I did. I wanted to do it preemptively, and uh, all right. it, it was a wasted day off. All right. Well, if we're gonna do this on Volkswagen, let's do this because we're gonna uh, talk about uh, Herbert Dees. You got to get there quickly. We gotta get there quickly. Herbert Dees shortages, chips. Deal. Here's what he had to say. We would be very happy if we could finish the year basically on levels of uh, uh, 2019. That would be our target. Uh, there's still uh, a lot of challenge ahead of us because of semiconductor shortages. I think we could manage very well in the first quarter uh, the general shortage, but the incidents, the incidents in Japan and in America, they're going to hurt us now in quarter two. But uh, over the year, we think. Uh, uh, towards the year end, we, can, we, we are hopeful to recover. Can you quantify how much they're going to hurt in the second quarter? We've heard so far some pretty shocking numbers in the industry. Ford, for example, a close partner of yours, said 50% of its production will be cut in Q2 because the chip shortage is going to cost them $2.5 billion. What do the numbers, specific numbers look like for Volkswagen? Actually, I wouldn't give you numbers now because we are fighting day by day. We are going to be hurt, but not in, in that kind of uh, magnitude. So uh, we think we will see some lines stopping for a few days, for a few weeks, but uh, not uh, as uh, brutal as the figures we see from some of our competitors. But it is interesting to see how the CEOs are trying to squirm away from that question because a lot of them just don't know. And they're doing really interesting and different things. Like, uh, obviously, the one is you want to move the chips into your most profitable and your most popular vehicles. But also things like you're not going to put the chip in the uh, GPS, you're not going to have a GPS, that kind of stuff. Some of them are even going back to analog speedometers, which is like kind Isn't of that that's old like school. A, a regular speedometer? No, because they've, they've all become digitized over the last few years. I don't have a digital one. I have the one with the little arrow that goes... Yeah, but that, but, but it's it, 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 behind that, there will also be some digitization. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and, I, and I suspect they're going back to wheel goes round, speedometer goes up kind of technology. And, and to be fair, my speedometer does not go... It was just for effect that I was trying to show you what it, what it does. I, I can imagine you're quite a speedy driver, though. So I imagine it's quite a. Did you do you know that it is true? My husband's like, maybe you don't want to go 90. Maybe let's slow that down, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, maybe you don't hit that cop car. Um, I have hit some poles in my lifetime. Um, anyway, we're talking about Gary Gensler, uh, SEC, that hearing underway right now. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The other main event here in the U.S. Um, is SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. He's uh, talking to the House Financial Services Committee and uh, sort of what he's going to do about the trading issues in the market. And I'm specifically talking about GameStop. We all remember that, right, where you had the Reddit crowd sort of bidding up GameStop, squeezing out the shorts, caused a lot of havoc. And the idea that is that good for the market? Is it bad? Does there need to be some extra regulation? So we're going to we're paying attention to that, too. Uh, okay, I'll keep talking. And so, no, you can keep. Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to be throwing to the tape. So I was going talked... to chat first. Okay, you can chat first. Ben Eifert, uh was was talking to Alex and I about this a little earlier on from 
from QVR. Will he he kind of he's deep in the weeds in much of this stuff. So let's listen to what he has to say. Then we're going to talk about what he has said <laughs> after that. Play the, the key thing he he's going to be driving at uh, based on comments he's been making the last couple of days is really this this question that has a new manifestation, right, in terms of Robinhood and GME, but is is an old old question in markets, right, which is the incentives facing brokers and exchanges when, when you think about it, right? Since the beginning of time, brokers make more money when their clients trade more volume, more aggressively. But that's not necessarily the behavior that's good for the clients and the consumers in the end, right? And, and I think part of the new dimension here, you know, when you think about Robinhood and you think about gamification, really one of the key innovations of Silicon Valley is, is to identify the behavior of users that generates the most revenue for the company and then do extensive A-B testing using a lot of technology and rolling out different versions, slightly different versions of the app to each customer to do controlled experiments of how to get the most revenue. And in the context of trading, that means to trade the most, the most aggressively to generate, to generate a payment for order flow and commissions for the company, right? And I think Gary is going to... Um, really come after some of those questions about um, is this consistent with you know creating good outcomes for for consumers so the front end may be a little too attractive and the algos that are driving it may be a little too sensitive and a bit too much like maybe some of the social networks out there ben like how do you if you are robin hood change that because this is your stick this is this is what you do this is how the business model works if that was altered how much of an impact do you think it would have? Yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see. So that Robinhood certainly has been working on some aspects of this. I think they've gotten out in front of some of the most obvious things. It's been talked a lot about, for example, that they've removed the confetti effect that used mm -hmm. to happen when you executed a trade, right? The sort of congratulations, great, you just did a trade and maybe you lost money. Um, but I think there are going to be several other areas that come into question. I mean, I think we and others have noted looking at the the trading UI for options. Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy to make an argument that that UI really oversimplifies a lot of the complexity and risks associated with options. That was Ben Eifert uh, of QVR. We kind of go to him for the market internals. But I, I think his point was like, you know, eliminate that sort of play thing like the confetti when you make a trade, but you also really need to crack down on how options are traded. I mean, if you're basically looking at the market as a casino, options are super complicated. Yeah, and I think that's the bit. I think I think I would stand up for a lot of people who have educated themselves over the last few years and and generated an understanding of the markets and trade equities and you can be in and out, that's fine. I think when you get into the to the options market, I think there's a lot more that is behind that trade and maybe it's being perceived as too simple. But I will say that they are buying relatively short dated calls, mm -hmm. which probably limits some of the exposure. But nevertheless, that exposure is there but and and yeah. the volatility could could really catch people out. But I also then take a take a little offense at the idea that regulators are going to have a better idea as to the risk tolerance of options traders, even if you're self-taught or not. It's like, well, how smart are regulators going to be to figure that part out, especially when it comes to wrapping things about Congress? Like that That's where I get a little bit suspicious. Absolutely. And I, and I wonder then if it's really up to the platforms to be better, which goes to the whole like eliminate confetti stuff. Yeah, I, I just making people, people feel good about actually trading is one thing. Getting it right, you can make people feel good. You make a profit, that's great. 
you make a loss, that's a learning experience, but, but simply the act of trading should not be rewarded. And I think that's where maybe things will change. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. It is Jobs Day in the USA tomorrow. Friday payroll numbers, a huge moment, and people are expecting a big number. I've just been listening to Mike McKee doing a promo for payroll coverage during the commercial break. I basically now need no more information about what we should be anticipating tomorrow. But you didn't get to listen to that, our dearly beloved audience. So let's let's repeat it. Mike McKee, <laughs> what should we be expecting tomorrow? Three, two, one. Actually, I like the way you put it. <laughs> Jobs Day in the USA. It sounds like a Bruce Springsteen I song. I was going to say that, totally. <laughs> totally. Guy's going to sing for us. Uh, really not. <laughs> Matt Miller's your man who's going to be yeah. singing. <laughs> We're looking for a strong jobs report. The consensus now up to one million jobs, which sounds like an awful lot until you realize we had four million jobs last May, but that's because we were coming off losing 20 million in April. Um, the You can't make charts anymore. The y-axis doesn't work. A million jobs, though, leaves us uh, still 8 to 10 million below the number of people who were employed at the beginning of 2020. And so Fed officials are going to be looking at this and going, yeah, yeah, okay, but uh, we've got a long way to go. So what's the market prep for? Because I wasn't the whisper number, like 1.2 million. So I feel like anything... Anything below what that is going to be disappointing or what? Uh, no, it'd have to be significantly off, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hearing from bond strategists that you know, you'd have to go to half a million or less uh, to, uh, okay. to really have a, a, a negative reaction. And to have a positive reaction, which I guess would mean interest rates would rise significantly, you'd need maybe a, a million and a half or more. Just some sign that the economy is significantly uh, outperforming. And the problem with the jobs numbers is the error band is very wide. So uh, we know we get big revisions every yep. month. So, um, What is weird is that the PMI data, both manufacturing and services now, is starting to show up labor shortages. Um, can you kind of pull the U.S. labor market together for me and give me an understanding of what is going on here? There are clearly pockets in which there are problems. People, employers can't get the employees that they need. How is the Fed going to manage a process where you've got clearly a surplus at the kind of uh, at the at the aggregate level, the sort of the the, the thirty thousand feet level? Well, when you get granular. That doesn't exist. And and if it doesn't exist at a granny level, you're going to get inflation coming from that. Well, the, the problem is uh, this is a recession, a, a job loss like unlike any other. Uh, we lost millions and millions and millions of low-paid service industry jobs where people were not particularly trained uh, for something besides asking what you want uh, on from the menu. Uh, now, those people have had a year to try to find other jobs and get retrained, and so a number of them are out of the labor force. A number of their jobs aren't coming back because the restaurant's closed or the hotel closed or the retail store closed. And so you have a large number of people who are still unemployed. But then you have the other side of the economy, which remained employed, is now trying to meet increased demand because of stimulus and the rebound effect of the economy, and they didn't hire for the last year. Everything was on hold, but they normally would have. So the natural growth in payrolls didn't occur. And so they're looking for a lot of people, and the two, the two sides don't necessarily match up. 
Now, you will get some wage inflation. It'll be uh, probably mostly from the lower end. Uh, and then you'll see that maybe flattening out. The thing to watch is inflation expectations because that's going to tell you whether or not people think, well, prices are going to keep rising, so I have to keep asking for more money. Well, I guess my question is, you know, a lot of you mentioned restaurants and a lot of the owners or chefs are going to blame the unemployment, extra unemployment benefits. And that ends in September, right? So is yeah. it possible that we sort of bump along a little bit and then come September once the unemployment extra unemployment runs out, it, the job market balloons? Like, is that something people are talking about? It, it, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, the question is, how many of the people who are unemployed were marginally attracted to the labor force, maybe outside the labor force now? They're not looking for work because they don't think there are jobs. And then they decide, I just don't want to go back to work. But also it's a full reopening because, and I made this point yesterday, Like, I, I worked as a waitress, and when you work on tips, you work on tips. Like if you are if the, if the you have seven tables versus 14 tables, you're making half the amount of money. Right. That's going to be a problem. Uh, full reopening. It, it, it's not just full reopening. It's mm-hmm. full reopening and people who are willing to go to the restaurant and sit among crowds again. Uh, we're going to have that experiment start to play out in a lot of places uh, fairly soon. We're going to have baseball stadiums opening up where people can sit together. Are they going to do that? Are they going to pass the hot dog down the road? No, <laughs> you know? no, no, so, no. So, uh, so are, they gonna, are, they, are they in the vaccinated segments or are they in the unvaccinated segments? <laughs> well, there'll be hot dogs in both segments. But in, want. I'm like, in the vaccinated dog, segments, uh, people will be sitting next to each other. Um, do I just not believe or listen to Robert Kaplan? Because he's getting really <laughs> punchy. And the bond market is not reacting. I appreciate he's not a voting member. But but kind of what shall I read into what he's saying? What's he trying to achieve with the comments, the punchy comments that he's using today? I think basically, I mean, he's been saying this for a couple of weeks now. He yeah. thinks the economy is expanding faster. And maybe he's the canary in the coal mine that starts to tell the bond market, sooner or later, we're all going to feel this way. But right now, nobody else is talking like that. And as you say, he's not a voter. So he's not having a, a big impact. Also, we're in a realm where Nobody, including Janet Yellen the other day when she talked about raising interest rates, nobody's surprised by any of this. Nobody Mm. thinks that somebody's saying something that's not going to happen. The market thinks that they're going to pull forward their uh, taper. So uh, Kaplan is not way outside the mainstream of Wall Street thinking. He's just saying things that other Fed officials aren't because they know if you get a lot of people saying it, then you're going to have a taper tantrum and they don't want to have to deal with that. That's such a good point. And wasn't that... Whose point was that? Paul Donovan of UBS the other day with the Janet Yellen thing. He's like, she basically just said everything, something that we all know anyway. What's the problem? Like, yeah, what's the big deal? Exactly. It's not like it's happening like imminently or anything like that. Yeah, she just forgot she's Janet Yellen, and if she says it, then, then everybody pays more story. attention. Um, okay, Michael McKee, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We'll be looking for you tomorrow as well. This is like his Super Bowl. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics uh, and Policy Correspondent. Um, Guy, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the level and the sector breakdown, too. And I wonder if it's going to track that expectations are so high now for economic data that we're just in for a little disappointment along well, we've the had, way. Yeah, we've had a bit of that recently with the ISM data. Mm-hmm. So bear that in mind when you think about what kind of a day we're going to have tomorrow. It's going to be a busy one. We're all looking forward to it. Some great coverage coming up. This was The Cable. This is Blue Bye.